I'm your host, Nick Dyson, Scientific Director of the Mass General Cancer Center, and this is episode 49. We're back with Shannon Stott and Brian Nahead again to hear about this amazing paper that they've just published. And I wanted to start just by asking you if you could summarize what you see as the big take-home message from the paper. Sure. I think for us, the big take-home message is that we have a technology that quickly and rapidly can take a small volume of blood from a, a glioblastoma patient and pull out a highly enriched population of tumor-specific signatures. Yes. And so we can then take just one mil, which is like a small teaspoon. As little as that? Yes. That's amazing. Flow it through the device and be able to get this rich content that can let us know how both what type of tumor it is at the beginning, yes. but then how it's changing in treatment from a blood sample. So we don't have to go, particularly in brain tumors, we don't have to have that highly invasive surgery yes. to get that understanding about what the tumor is doing. Right. And this must open so many new doors. Where do you start? Uh, what's the first thing you try and do? Uh, open as many doors as possible. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think uh, to echo what Shannon's saying, I think as a clinician and, and as a patient, um, for the first time, we have the ability to make decisions possibly in real time yes. instead of only at these moments of diagnosis or at recurrence. And from a clinician's perspective, it, it's the opportunities are endless, hmm. uh, not only to better understand and identify mutations, but particularly as therapies are getting more and more advanced or targeted, uh, whether it's immune therapy or some type of exact targeted mutational therapy, right. uh, increasingly we believe that um, you'll want to not only know the information at the time of diagnosis, but monitor it as you inflict whatever that new therapy is, uh, and hopefully can be smarter than the tumor. Um, I'm confident that with more information, we can make better decisions and yeah. help our patients. So to get to your point, what the, the, it's not only the diagnosis, but it's mostly at the, during the course of the disease, from the diagnosis beyond. Yes. Um, how does somebody respond to chemotherapy? How does someone respond to radiation therapy? And then more importantly, I can know I keep saying more importantly, but more importantly, um, at the moment when things aren't going well, what more information can you give that patient and that clinician yes. to help them make the next best choice? Yes, yes. And, and I would say as a technologist, I think we want to also combine our past with our present. And so we started off talking about the circulating tumor cell work, and that's how Brian and I first start to work together, and now we have these vesicles. Right. But we really want to integrate them all yes. into one thing so that when we, we have yeah. that blood test, it can all be together. Do you capture the, the cells when you capture vesicles, or is it specific for one or the other? So currently, the technologies are specific for one or the other. And so you could take the, the waste or the trash yes. from the, the eye chip. <laughs> yes, the flow through. And then we put it through the, the vesicle. So the eye chip uh, isolates the cells, the circulating tumor yes. cells. Yeah. And then you could feed whatever is being thrown away and discarded yes. and yes. sort through that to get both the exosomes as well right. as the ctDNA. Right. One of the things we didn't talk about was one of the big advantages of this device is that you can elute safely from it so mm -hmm. that uh, you can elute the cells without damaging them or you can elute the vesicles, the exosomes, without damaging them. Yes. Uh, and uh, that is uh, very special, right, because you can, do, uh, you can culture the cells and do the analyses that you've done in the past. 
I think one of the things that in all of our efforts, so we're continuing to look at the circulating tumor cells and we're looking at the vesicles, but just as you said, there's this ability to do these highly functional experiments and assays. And so as we're pulling out these rare cancer cells from patients, we very much have an interest in trying to culture them. Mm. If we can have patient-specific cell lines, yes. it could be really informative in terms of what's going on with their tumors. And so we recently have had some success, thanks to a great postdoc, Keith Wong, um, had been able to establish a uh, CTC cell line from uh -huh. one of our more aggressive glioblastoma patients. Mm. And so because of our gentle manipulation in the technology, we can pull those cells out, we can culture, but it's also just as important to keep the vesicles in a functional way as well. Yes. Because what we're envisioning is that those little particles are meant to be there as messages to the cancer right. cells. Right. And so combining the vesicles and CTCs in culture, we're hoping would increase our success in getting these cultures to start. Right. And, and so much of what we do is um, on the clinical side is to make everything personalized from not only the surgery, but also the medic medical therapy. And we view this, the liquid biopsy, as fingerprinting that person's tumor yes. at any one point. Yes. And to be able to continually go back and fingerprint right. it, if you will, and get all that information, as Shannon was saying, the circulating tumor cells, the exosomes, and then all the other yes. particles. And that's what we're so excited about our collaboration is you can pull that all together right. and for the first time agnostic to any of those modalities, but actually all of it becomes layered. Right. I had a, a question that was related to technology before we started the conversation, which was that when we started, I didn't understand what the difference was between uh, analyzing the contents of these vesicles and just sequencing circulating DNA or RNA. Um, because that's uh, an alternative technology that is in increasing use and being used to uh, profile cancer genomes. Um, I imagine that the, the, the answer is because of this ability to purify the tumor-specific exosomes. Is, is that the... Correct, yes. Having that signal-to-noise ratio as an engineer that we refer to it as, yes. you know, that we can go deeper into the RNAs that are there. It's still a little controversial in the field about the amount of DNA hmm. that's present in the vesicles, um, but there are some studies that do show that DNA is present. But because we have this enrichment, we feel that we can go yes. deeper into to the RNA analysis yes. than some of the circulating RNA right. and DNA. Now, right. the other thing that I'll mention from a technical standpoint in reference to free DNA, um, the studies that have been published about the presence of circulating DNA in glioblastoma, it is the least amount of any cancer. Oh. And it's less than 5% has been detected on average. Yes. Um, and so we're still looking to see if our latest approaches and strategies may increase that. Mm -hmm. But from the historical data that had been published, yes. it suggests that it may be a much richer source to go right. after the vesicles. Right, right. And, and ultimately, there might be information that each can, can provide as different yes. components. Yeah. And, you know, it'll be fascinating to know what the relationship of one to the other right. is right. and compared to the original tumor right. specimen. Uh, right. Again, I, I keep going back to the fact that this is sort of the, the Wild West in the yeah. sense that we don't know what we're going to find, and that's the most exciting part of this. Yes, yes. But um, as we keep opening doors, we hope to find right. more and more. Right. What's the stability of exosomes? So 
this is also controversial in the field. Uh -huh. yeah. um, so I think, so the field isn't that old. Um, so I think really the, the big push in the extracellular vesicle and, or exosome field, is it's, it's about 10 to 15 years old. And so the initial thought was that these are largely microRNAs that are packaged inside these lipid bilayers, so they're very stable. So yes. statements that these vesicles can sit on the bench top for three days Oh. and not have any deterioration, that yes. we can put them into a freezer right. without any consequential or negative yeah. damage. And so as someone who has a background in freezing <laughs> stuff in my reservation, you know, I, I hear this and you know, I, I brace myself because I don't know of any biological system uh -huh. where you have a lipid bilayer uh -huh. that you can freeze or you yes. know, put out on a bench yes. top and have it be perfectly stable. Yes. So this is another right. avenue that we've right. been investigating to, so that we can get the most out of our right. sample. Right. Yes. If that were true, that would be even better for your uh, processing of the patient samples, I would imagine. Yes. Uh, yes. Indeed. Yeah. So uh, talking about of which, uh, what are the clinical contexts that you now want to first try and apply this to? Um, because there could be so many things uh, that you could try and roll it out, but I imagine there are specific priorities that sure. are higher for you. Absolutely. Um, so I think, you know, our initial go at this was just to prove they were there. And now uh, it's our duty and, and frankly, our interest um, yeah. to figure out why and when are they there yes. and what information can we extract. And so we're looking at patients from initial diagnosis all the way through their therapy yeah. to figure out if and when we can get certain information. Right. And that's where the... Um, comprehensive approach, there might be times when the circulating tumor cells are higher, there might be times when the exosomes are higher. Yeah. And so the actual clinical questions, I think, are open-ended, but then very specifically, they apply both at diagnosis and then at sort of recurrence. And this question of whether or not there's treatment response or treatment sort of effect. Yes. To just get a little more detail on that, whether or not somebody's responding to therapy and right. can stay on that therapy right. and is actually doing so well that you don't need to change them, or rather they're failing and we need to come up with a better plan. Sometimes that involves surgery, and if we can save someone or make a better choice right. for surgery, right. to me that's the most ger right. germane of, of, of impacts that we can have. And are you doing this for all brain tumors? Or That's uh, a great question. So we, we, again, focused on a glioblastoma, just thinking that it is one of the more aggressive ones. Mm -hmm. But we've had some success starting to look in other brain tumors as well. And there's no doubt that if we can find it in one, we may be able to find yes. it in others. Um, this is where we're lucky to be at a place like Mass General, where a lot of the clinicians that we work with, right. even beyond glioblastoma, are part of this project and uh, championing our cause, but also helping us. And yes. this is where we look for patients who have any type of brain tumor, whether it's adult all the way to pediatrics. Right. Um, we feel like we have, we're, we have this secret and we want to sort yeah. of share it with everybody. Yes. Yeah. So at the moment, it's not written into a specific clinical trial, for example. It's just being applied broadly across the disease range. Yes, but, but we are hoping, and some of our patients are on clinical trials, that we can mm -hmm. then retrospectively go back and look at the patients that responded versus didn't respond yes. and look, were there additional signatures? Because we do think that this could have great value right. in better selecting the patients for particular trials. Because right now, from talking with my colleagues here, yes. um, there can be a trial where you only have two out of 17 respond and then that kills the trial. But if we had a better way of identifying that population, that um, it could be really helpful in a disease that doesn't have a lot of treatment options. Yes. It, so. we're, we're convinced that if we can get this liquid biopsy, this um, yes. ability to better understand tumor response, but also mutation, new mutations that form, um, we can 
hopefully help some clinical trials advance right. and also determine when clinical trials need to, to stop in a, in a more instructive way than just an MRI. An MRI is just an image, and it, yes. again, it's very difficult to yes. make a lot from that. Um, and I think the ability to, you know, we've just hit the tip of the iceberg with the, the amount of mutational stuff we can do with these cells, these exosomes, the circulating uh, material. If we can expand on that and start to get clinically relevant ones, and then eventually ones that we can target, mm -hmm. uh, we view this as a just a game changer. Yeah. And, and I think from my engineering perspective, to translate the the inability for the MRI to be a true diagnostic and prognostic. When we first started doing this with Brian, Brian would identify patients that would have aggressive brain tumors and say, oh, I, I'm about to do my initial biopsy. I believe it's a glioblastoma. And then mm -hmm. we would process the sample. So mm -hmm. we would pull out the exosomes. We would do gene sequencing for these vesicles. Yes. And then when we first got our, our data back, we were looking at it and we had eight of our patients clustering really nicely together, separate from the healthy donors. And then there was this one really strong outlier. Uh -huh. And we thought perhaps we messed up or there was something wrong and we're blinded to all of the clinical status. And so then we go back to Brian yes. and he said, well, actually the MRI was misleading. It wasn't actually a glioblastoma. It was actually a different type of brain tumor. And so that's seen from a blood test that if this was done, mm -hmm. A lot consequentially with the MRI yes. that it could be more informative to Brian as he's making his initial surgery planning and decisions. You can, you can see very quickly in that example, which was again just somewhat luck, mm -hmm. um, if you now focus on a patient who's not going to end up getting a resection because the tumor is in right. a really delicate area or a, a pediatric patient who can't necessarily yes. undergo that procedure, all of a sudden you can see the power of this. Yes. And um, I, I think there would be nothing better than to be able to tell a patient and their family, this is what I think it is, and this is these are the mutations. You may or may not need surgery because we need to take the mass out, but frankly, we know exactly what's going on, and we can track this yes. throughout, yes. and that we can constantly give you the information and us the information and the clinicians the information on how to tr fight this better. Yeah. Uh, that's where I think we're going to go beyond just surgery, because I think surgery does an incredible job at extending, I'm quite biased, but extending, um, <laughs> uh, you know, a, a patient's uh, not only outcome, but their survival, but it only can get you so far. This is an invasive tumor yes. and an invasive disease, and we need to be smarter, we need right. to be better. Right. There's an amazing list of opportunity there. I, um, one of the exciting things that I heard you mention in passing that I didn't appreciate was the cost of the device, because for this to have the impact that you want it to, you need to disseminate it. And uh, that would be very difficult if the devices were $50,000 each to make. You, but you said they were just a couple of dollars each. Yes, yes. And that's for the, the plastic component of the chip. Uh, and so when we yeah. incorporate RNA sequencing and all, yes. all of the downstream analysis, yes. that, that cost can rise. But I think that's something that Brian and I think about, and right. especially working with all of our colleagues at Mass General, seeing the assays that translate to the clinic cannot be assays that cost a lot of money. And yes. so one of our goals is to do this broader analysis of what's going on in the tumors, but then identifying these are the you know, six key RNAs that we need to track, and let's translate our next-gen sequencing to a, yeah. you know, digital droplet PCR assay or something that just keeps the overall cost as low as possible yes. so that we can use this as often and with as many patients as we can. We're lucky in that sense that the, um, 
Mass General Pathology Department are our closest colleagues and collaborators and mm -hmm. champions. And, you know, we use a lot of their experience in figuring out clinically relevant tests yes. because the last thing we want to do is develop a test that costs $100,000 that, you yes. know, yes, that only no we can run. It's, there's no point in that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, on the other hand, it does cost a lot, but I think we're in that early phase. And as we, as Shannon was saying, um, we do a really good job at finding the things we know, and, and there's a whole panel of things we yeah. don't know, and we just have to bridge that gap. Yes, yeah. Well, it's been wonderful uh, talking with you this morning. It's very inspiring to hear about the progress and about all this potential. So good luck with your work. Thank, Thank, you. Thank you so much. Thank Nick. you so much. To read the article from Shannon and Brian in Advances at the Mass General Cancer Center, go to massgeneral.org slash cancer slash advances. <laughs>